It echoes across the planet through the galaxies of heaven, even into the deepest recesses of hell. Who is worthy? And I'm sure the world will have some explanation when this voice, oh, there's aliens from heaven who are talking to us. Who knows what they'll come up with? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the book of Revelation, and in a message entitled, The Lamb and the Scroll, Pastor Brogy has been looking at a scroll that is introduced in verse 1 of chapter 5. We've so far seen that this scroll is in the right hand of God the Father, and that it is written on both sides. We've also noted that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy reminds us that there are over 300 Old Testament references or allusions in the book of Revelation, and the passage we're looking at today harkens back to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 32. In the prophet Jeremiah, God is instructing his prophet before they are carried away to Babylon to buy a uh, piece of land in the territory of Benjamin. Uh, God dictated where the various tribes were to stay and be and And he was to buy a piece of land for 17 shekels. We studied in the prophet Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, was going to come down and be an instrument of God, an instrument of judgment to carry the people away for 70 years. And I'm having you turn to Jeremiah 32. If you're new, just find Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the right. You will soon come to Jeremiah. It's helpful to illustrate the importance of this scroll because this is not any old scroll. We're going to see that the scroll that we're studying here in the Revelation is the title deed to the earth. And so there would be scrolls that were not sealed. When a scroll was sealed, it was like, this seal has authority behind it, so you better be careful. You better heed before you crack that seal because you're dealing with the authority behind the seal. Ancient Roman wills and title deeds have actually been found, some that have been unopened, one in particular about 30 years ago that was found with seven seals. It was a miraculous thing that it was still intact. And so, for instance, if you had a Roman deed or will or title deed, seven people would be engaged in sealing with their signet rings the particular scroll, and for that will to even be read, all seven people had to be present. But I just want to illustrate something for you. Now, remember, God is speaking um, to the prophet Jeremiah, your people are going to be carried away for 70 years. We studied that in Daniel 9. Remember, the end of the 70 years is coming. Daniel opens the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah, the one we're reading, and he learns that the time of captivity would be 70 years. He's thinking, oh, it's almost over. How does Daniel interpret prophecy? Literally. He said 70 years in his mind meant 70 years. And so while there are symbols, you still find the meaning of the symbol, and once you find the meaning of the symbol, you interpret it literally. So when Satan is called the great red dragon. He's not like a lot of artists picture him as a dragon with a pitchfork and a forked tail. It's describing his ferocious, evil, wicked nature. But once you understand the meaning of the symbol, then you literally believe him. And so here in Jeremiah, God has him buy this piece of property. Why? 
because God said in 70 years, your people are going to come back. And here's a piece of property that needs to be redeemed. And I want to underscore by promise and by your action that I'm going to do exactly what I said. By the way, how do you interpret the Bible the way we interpret it? God created within the Bible a principle by which you interpret the Scripture. When you see Daniel interacting with Jeremiah or Jesus interacting with the prophets or the apostles interacting with Jesus or the Old Testament, then you begin to understand that they applied a literal, plain, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Word of God. All right, Jeremiah 32, verse 9, I bought the field, which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son. And I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahaseah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses, who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards will again be brought in the, bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God. We sing this. Matt's led us in this before. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after after them. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now drop down to verse 24. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it. That's Nebuchadnezzar coming to capture Jerusalem. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. Because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and what you have spoken has come to pass, and behold, you see it. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses. Although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. That's why they're being judged, among other reasons. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger, in my wrath from the day they had built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. Now listen, verses 36 and 37. 
Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. So follow it. He's got a legal document. They're identical. One is open, one is sealed. So when they would come back 70 years later and they would dig it up, they could easily see Someone didn't just plant these here. Here's the open one that dictates precisely what God said as to whose property this is. And here's an unbroken seal from a signet 70 years before indicating the terms of this. And Jeremiah was redeeming property just like God had commanded in Leviticus chapter 25. And so houses and fields and vineyards will be brought bought in the land. He is underscoring that there was a payment that needed to be made in order to be able to purchase this piece of property, and it's sealed with a signet ring. Now, that's a common function that they did in Jewish culture, and in Roman culture, in extra-biblical literature, they have found, as I mentioned just 30 years ago, a seven-sealed document, unbroken, unopened, miraculously, but they would use them for a human will, but they would also use them for a land grant. But now we are coming to a text of Scripture where there's a seven-sealed scroll, where someone is not going to buy a piece of property, the one who is going to open this scroll, as we're going to see in the sixth chapter and following, is being given the title deed to the earth. All right? Now, that's the uh, mysterious scroll, just to wet your taste. Stay with me. We're not done. You're with me? Say amen. All right, good. Let's think about the meticulous scroll, the meticulous search, the meticulous search. Beyond this mysterious scroll, there's a search, and the search is delivered to us here in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So when John sees a strong angel who is called to step forward and ask a question, Everyone can hear. The strong angel's name, in this case, is not given, but with a loud voice, he asks the question, who is worthy to open the book, to open the scroll, and to break its seals? Now, he's deemed a strong angel, and the strength of this particular strong angel that is accented, of course, is his voice. By the way, there are just four named angels in the Bible. Two of them are holy angels. Two of them are fallen angels. We studied two of the named angels in the book of Daniel, namely Michael and Gabriel, who also, of course, come into the New Testament. Then there are two fallen angels that are given names in the Scripture. Lucifer, prior to his fall, his name literally means a shining one, so you could render it that way or interpreted that way, but his fallen name, of course, is Satan in the New Testament. The other only fallen angel that's named, we will meet him when we come to Revelation 9, his name is Apollon in Hebrew, Abaddon. He gives us also the Greek rendering as well, like Christ and Messiah. We're going to have a Greek and a Hebrew name. You say, what about the angel Moroni? He's not in the Bible, not the angel moron. He's in the Book of Mormon, all right? Listen, 
There's just two holy angels and two fallen angels. And we've already seen that there are different categories of angels. God has organized his angels into principalities and powers. There's ranks. There's cherubim, whom we looked at last week. There are seraphim. And when we study angels, we, one, learn that in 2 Peter 2 and verse 11, they are more powerful than men. There was a huge stone there at the empty tomb. And if you've been to the garden tomb, it's estimated that rock would be over 2,000 pounds. And the women, of course, could not move the stone. But an angel of the Lord moved it. They are powerful. They're intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They are powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They are intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They are faster than humans, but they're not omnipresent. But occasionally the Bible describes an angel in a particular way. And we will see in the Revelation that there are two strong angels that are mentioned. One, when we come to chapter 18, who's deemed a strong angel because he's able to take a mighty millstone and cast it into the sea. But this strong angel is distinguished as such by the voice that God gave him. And the voice that he shouts is able to reach across the universe, across the heavens, to the ends of the earth, even below the earth, into the recesses of hell. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And John is waiting anxiously. He's searching the horizon. He's looking, he's waiting, he's praying, he's hoping. But no one answers, just dead silence. Of course, until John breaks that silence with his own weeping. But again, verse 3 tells us that this loud voice literally fills the universe. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. It echoes across the planet, through the galaxies of heaven, even into the deepest recesses of hell. Who is worthy? And I'm sure the world will have some explanation when this voice, oh, there's aliens from heaven who are talking to us. Who knows what they'll come up with? But this is a challenge to all of humanity, to all of recorded civilization, who or what has the right to take the scroll, which is the title deed to all the earth, amongst all the sons of Adam, who is worthy? Who is capable? And the answer is no one. Now, more than one ruler, of course, in human history has tried to take the title deed to the earth. We studied King Nebuchadnezzar and all of his pride and glory who boasted of the great kingdom that he had built, but it eventually collapsed. We studied in Daniel chapter 11, Alexander the Great, who conquered the world of his day, an empire that went as far as Persia, Asia Minor, all the way to India, the Bible records. But at the age of 32, when there were no more lands to conquer, he fell down and got into a drunken stupor, and at his own extravagant banquet, he died. Likewise, Julius Caesar, he moved across Europe with the Pax Romana, with the Roman peace. But the Roman Empire itself, with moral corruption, fell apart from within. Napoleon sought to rule the world through the French Empire, he failed. Hitler thought he could rule the world. Saddam Hussein in his lifetime sought to unite in a rebuilt Babylon all the Muslim nations of the world that they might rule, but he failed. Many men throughout the ages have failed, but there is one who is coming 
who will be very close to success. And we're going to learn his name is Antichrist. He actually has over 30 names that are found in the Scripture. And he will come to rule the world, but his rule will only bring ruin. There are people who, with their egotistical, tyrannical nature, thought that they could rule the world, but all they've brought is hardship and evil. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This is a picture of the absolute helplessness of humanity as it relates to the future of the world. Now, we don't know what tomorrow may bring in our own personal lives, so the Bible tells us we're to be prudent. We are to plan for tomorrow, but we're not to be anxious over tomorrow. We can't see what the future will bring, but God sees the future, and God reveals a lot to us, and we need to have this perspective that He's going to give us here in the Revelation, or as things get worse, you're going to despair and really think that the world is out of control. And so John breaks the silence in verse 4, notice, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Think about it. There's not an angel in heaven. There's not a Christian on earth. There's not a prophet. There's not an apostle. Abraham, the father of the faithful and the friend of God, was not worthy. Isaac, who is a type and illustration of Christ, he was not worthy. Jacob, who became the progenitor of the 12 tribes from which Messiah came, he was not worthy. Not even Moses was worthy. And God says of Moses that he was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Job could not be considered worthy to open the scroll. And yet God said of him, there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. In fact, Noah, Daniel, and Job are brought together in Ezekiel as three men who are described as righteous men. And yet none of them are worthy. King David a man after God's own heart was not worthy. And even John the Baptist and Jesus said, there was never a man ever, a human, born of a woman greater than John. But John was not worthy. No one alive, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. There was no one, no son of Adam, who could legitimately claim the title deed to the earth. No one on the face of the earth could rescue and rule and redeem this world. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy. Please notice the question in verse 3 is not who is willing to open the book. Many have been willing, but who is worthy to open the book? And I began to weep, clio. There are different words for crying in the Bible. This means uncontrollable sobbing. This is not a few tears running down the cheek. This is a wailing. This is a deep sobbing. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John knows this world needs to be redeemed, and if it's not, then his time there in the Devil's Island on the Isle of Patmos is wasted. If no one can redeem the world, then the promises that God made to the people of Israel that Messiah will literally rule and reign upon the earth and God will be glorified in a golden age, that it will never happen. 
He knows that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That that cannot happen if no one is worthy to open the scroll. And so it's really a picture of broken humanity. And God is allowing his servant to go through this for a reason. Because he wants to underscore the one who is worthy, the one who can open the book and redeem humanity from the mess that we are in. Now, that brings us to the third point. Beyond the mysterious scroll and the meticulous search, we come to the magnificent Savior. The magnificent Savior. The Apostle John, he's overcome with grief because no one is found worthy to open the book with its seven seals. He knew the seriousness of this situation. He knew that human destiny will remain a closed book, that all of God's promises will be nullified if it cannot be opened. And so he weeps, not as someone who is just disappointed, but someone who is in despair. It's like God is allowing his servant to go through a bad dream to underscore for us that there is hope. And of course, this would be great news to the seven churches that were being persecuted. And the answer is going to come from one of the 12, from one of the 24 elders whom we studied last week. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. The lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, those are very significant Jewish titles. They're introduced to us here in Revelation 5 in kernel form, but they become very important as we work through the Revelation, and that's why we're not skipping this. They refer to prophecies that God made concerning the Messiah. The Bible predicted that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, specifically the family of David. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons was named Judah. And God predicted, he prophesied that his son Judah would be the progenitor, his people, for the Messiah. And out of that tribe, there are all these different families, and one family in particular, namely the family of David, to tighten the focus a little bit more. And by the way, these messianic titles alone will become clear reminders to us that Israel is going to come back on center stage during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's very important when you think about that. So, who is this one who is worthy to open? Stop weeping. Behold, the lion. The lion. Remember, Jacob, when he blessed Judah, he called him a lion's whelp. And so they camped under the banner of a lion, as we saw last time. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is one of the great messianic titles in the Old Testament that's repeated here in the Revelation. Now, remember, Jesus grew up in a family with at least seven half-brothers and sisters. His four brothers are named, and sisters is plural, that's six, so that would make a family of seven children plus Mary and Joseph. This idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a biblical concept. The way our Roman Catholic friends get to that is they do from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, where brother can mean cousin, but brother in the Greek New Testament, the language God inspired it in, can only mean brother as sister, all right? So anyway... Here's the point. He grew up in this family, and uh, there are all these different brothers and sisters that he grew up with, and I can imagine what that was like. I mean, imagine growing up in the family where, uh, you know, Jesus is like, you know, 
Jesus never does anything wrong. Why can't you be like Jesus, you know? I mean, you can imagine the, the animosity that could have developed among some of the brothers and sisters. And of course, there, there came a time in their, in their life when Jesus said, look, I'm not just uh, your brother. I'm Messiah. I am God in human flesh. And what did they conclude? He's, he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He's out of his gourd. He's lost it, man. So this is an important title. He's of the tribe of Judah. Judah, we get our word Jew from that particular brother. Jacob prophesied that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. But the elder also described this one who is able to open the scroll as being of the root of David. That speaks of Messiah's royalty. Remember, three big titles for Jesus in the New Testament. Son of God, affirming his deity. Son of man, affirming his humanity. Son of David, affirming his royalty, that he is king. And so Messiah is going to rule on David's throne. God said that to Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, that your son is going to sit on David's throne. When did that happen? It has never happened. But it is going to happen. And so for my dear brothers in the Lord who are into replacement theology, that God is done with the Jew, that Israel is of no significance, they are not plainly, literally interpreting what God said concerning his son and his right to rule upon the earth. The prophet Isaiah, we read it every Christmas, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet. A child's been given to us, but the governments have not rested on his shoulders. We studied in Daniel that in one verse of Scripture, both comings of Christ could be magnified. And of course, if you're a Jew living in the first century and you're under the oppression of Gentiles as they had been since the time of King Nebuchadnezzar and will be until the end of the tribulation, you'd want a victorious Messiah who would crush Rome. One who would have the governments on his shoulders, not one who came in sandals walking through dusty streets and ends up crucified. They didn't want that kind of Messiah. But remember, there are two comings of Messiah. First, he comes as a suffering servant, but then he comes as a mighty ruler who will rule and reign over the earth. The governments will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's the Eternal Father. Not that he is the Father, but he's the Eternal Father, and that by his work on Golgotha, he is able to birth spiritual children, people who are born again, who become members of the family of God. He is the Prince of Peace. But here's the point. We can understand the root of David in that term because it communicates both his deity and his humanity. He's the predecessor of David. He's the root of David, but he's also the offspring of David. And so when you go to Isaiah chapter 11, you see those pictures. He is the shoot that comes out after David, but at the same time, he is the root of David. As far as his humanity is concerned, he is the shoot. He comes after David. As far as his deity is concerned, he is the root of David. Jesus was both the predecessor and the offspring of King David. He was the root and the shoot. And tomorrow we'll look at the importance of this as we continue our study in the Revelation and our introduction to the scroll with seven seals found in chapter 5. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series on the Revelation, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV12. Tomorrow, the conclusion of The Lamb and the Scroll. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.